Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. When all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, a book I read over my sabbatical is called In the Kingdom of Ice. It's by a guy named Hampton Sides. It's quite an interesting book. It's about late 19th century uh, explorers and adventurers who sought to map out and explore really the only two parts of the globe at that point that had not yet been thoroughly mapped out, and that is the North Pole and Antarctica, the, the South Pole. And uh, in the book, sides, details, it's really a, quite a fascinating story, some of the journeys of these men. And one of these explorers or uh, scientists, excuse me, one of these scientists and adventurers and explorers was an Irishman named Ernest Shackleton. And Ernest Shackleton took a crew with him to explore the South Pole in the late 1890s. And, and his journey really was a disaster. It was filled with one uh, mess after another, with one crisis after another. And, and at one point, as the story is told, Shackleton was forced to leave some of his men temporarily stranded on this little island right off of the coast of Antarctica called Elephant Island. And uh, he promised he would come back for them later when the weather chilled out a little bit. And so he did try to go back later on, but these massive icebergs were blocking the ship's way. Uh, but suddenly, as if by some miracle, uh, an avenue, a very narrow avenue, opened up in the ice, and Shackleton, with his ship, was able to get through. And his men were there. They were ready and, and waiting, and they quickly, in about 10 minutes, scrambled on board. And no sooner had the ship cleared the island that the, than the ice crashed back together behind them. And as they were contemplating their narrow escape, Shackleton said this to his men. It was fortunate that you were all packed up, right, and, and ready to go. And they replied by saying this, we never gave up hope. Whenever the sea was clear of ice, we rolled up our sleeping bags and reminded each other the boss may come today. This is a, a parable intended to remind you that the boss may come today. Jesus talks often in his life and in his ministry about his return. And that's what he's talking about in this parable and really throughout Matthew chapter 25. This is a story about being ready, about being prepared for the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus wants his second coming, his return to be something that we think about, to be something that we look forward to, to be something that we live 
for, and this parable is intended for that purpose in your life today. All the parables we've, we've looked at so far begin by saying, Jesus saying something like this, the kingdom of God is like, and then he'll tell a story. I wonder if you noticed in verse 1 of this chapter, chapter 25, Jesus says, the kingdom of God will be like. Jesus here is telling us about a future aspect of his kingdom, the not yet part of his kingdom, and he's encouraging us to ready ourselves for it. And if you understand the context in which Jesus tells this story, that becomes even clearer. This parable comes right on the heels of Jesus' longest discussion in all the Bible about when he's going to return. In Matthew 24, the very beginning of that chapter, Christ's disciples ask him in verse 3, Tell us, Jesus, what are going to be the signs of your coming and of the close of the age? How are we going to know? How should we, what should we be looking for to get ready? And so Jesus, in response to that question, goes into what is called the Olivet Discourse. It's called that because he's teaching on the Mount of Olives about his return. And uh, I want you to notice at the very end of Matthew 24, right before we get to our text, Jesus gives another illustration. And in that story, he talks about two servants one of whom is doing the will of his master when the master comes, and the other servant is not doing the will of his master when the master comes. And you'll see there, Jesus says, uh, no one knows when I'm going to come back, verse 36 of chapter 24, so get ready. And interestingly enough, in the story of the two servants, in that parable, the, the, the master comes before the servants expect it. And then Jesus tells this story of the parable of the ten virgins in which the bridegroom, Jesus, comes after the people expect it. But either way, the theme and the point is the same. Be ready. Be ready for Christ's return. He could come sooner than we expect. He could come later than we expect, but he is going to come. And so Jesus closes our story, as Nathan read in verse 13, by saying, watch, therefore, watch, For you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the parable of the ten virgins or the ten bridesmaids. And I want to split it up into two parts for us. First, a picture of unpreparedness is what this parable largely is about. A picture of unpreparedness. Secondly, the consequence of unpreparedness. The first point is going to be a lot longer than the second point, so don't freak out when I'm 25 minutes in and say, okay, point two. Okay, just warning. Okay, so let's look then first at the picture that Jesus paints in this story of unpreparedness. This parable is really a masterpiece. Even non-Christian Bible readers can read it and put it right up there at the top of the class of great little short stories that paint a vivid and clear picture. But to see really the vividness of this story, a bit of background information, I think, is necessary. If you were here a few weeks ago, Will taught on the parable of the wedding feast. And one of the points Will made, rightly, is that in the ancient world, weddings were a huge deal. I mean, they're a big deal now, but they were a really big deal then. And the way weddings were celebrated was really, it was much more relational, it was much less formal, and it was much, much, much longer. A couple of weeks ago, uh, for a family movie night at the Evans house, which we usually do on Saturdays, uh, we watched The Father of the Bride. Some of you might remember that movie. I'm dating myself now. That's like a 30-year-old movie now. Gee whiz. 
is. Uh, but I love that movie. And uh, one of the things about that movie that's hilarious is how just kind of frantic everyone is throughout the entire story getting ready for the wedding. And the franticness is kind of personified in Martin Short's character, who is the wedding planner, whose name is Franz. Franz, the wedding planner, is frantically preparing for every detail of this wedding throughout the entire film. And at the end of the story, when the wedding is actually taking place, he has a a headset on like I have on right now, kind of my my Britney Spears mic. He's got his Britney Spears mic on and he's frantically speaking with everyone to make sure, you know, that the doves ascend into the sky at the exact right moment. It's very much about timing everything perfectly. That's not at all how weddings were. In Jesus's day, they were long, they were informal, they stretched over days. And what would happen at the very end of this big, really week long party was this. The bride would be in her mom and her dad's home and the groom would journey from his house to his future in-laws house to bring his bride back to his house for one last big party. And while he's in his bride's parents home, he would often negotiate the dowry with his in-laws. And so he could be delayed for some time in returning to his house. In fact, in that culture, the longer the bridegroom was delayed often meant the more prominent the family was in that culture. So this is really important symbolically in ancient Jewish culture. And so meanwhile, as the groom is in the house negotiating and discussing things, all of the virgins, the bridesmaids, that's who the virgins are in this story, They would go out to the entrance of the groom's house with these torches. They're not lamps, they're they're torches, and they would light them and wait for the bride and the groom to return to their house through this torch-lit walkway and have one final celebration as their wedding concluded. So not only are the bridesmaids invited to the wedding, but they had a key role to play in the wedding. So in Jesus' story... All 10 bridesmaids are invited. All 10 bridesmaids accept the invitation and all 10 bridesmaids had a job to do. Furthermore, all 10 bridesmaids fall asleep when the groom is in fact delayed. That's what Jesus tells us in verse five. But the story turns on the difference. The difference between five of them and the other five. Jesus tells us in verse two that five of these bridesmaids were wise and that five were foolish. Now that bifurcation, wise, foolish, does not mean that five were smart or intelligent and five were stupid and dumb. That's Old Testament language, meaning that five feared the Lord. They feared the Lord and walked in his ways, whereas the other five did not. And this shows up in the story uh, in the key detail. The five wise bridesmaids, Jesus says, brought enough oil to keep their torches lit until the groom returned. But the five foolish bridesmaids, verse three and four, did not. These torches, once they were lit, would last about 15 minutes or so. And so not to think to bring, you know, a flask of oil along with you in case you need them to burn longer, really, it was, it was inexcusable. There's no reason Not to think, given the customs and the history of what weddings were like in that day, that you should not bring extra wine, excuse me, extra oil. I should probably bring extra wine too. Uh, it, It reminds me of, you know, imagine, this probably happened to some of us when you're in grade school or maybe even in 
high school or college and your teacher has been telling you repeatedly day after day, we're going to have a test on this Friday. And the test is going to be an open book test. You're allowed to have your book with you. And they tell you that every morning and every day before the bell rings and you go home. And then Friday comes and you show up and you sit down at your desk and the teacher says, it's time for the test. Everybody open your books and guess what you've forgotten? Your book. Not bringing extra oil is like not bringing your book to an open book test. These bridesmaids, they're, they're unprepared. And so when the groom does in fact delay, and then he shows up in the middle of the night, the cry goes out in the street. Verse six, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And the foolish bridesmaids, they can't keep their torches lit, can they? Because they've run out of oil. Even though they knew it was very possible that the groom would come later than they expected. It's a great little story that shows the importance of preparation and the significance of not being prepared. You might find it to be an interesting story as well, but what does it mean for you? How does this story apply to your life now, thousands of years later, with different customs and in a different culture? I want to tell you a couple of things that I think the Lord wants us to hear via the parable of the ten uh, bridesmaids. The first thing I think this parable teaches is this. Past experience does not guarantee present preparedness. Past experience does not guarantee present preparedness. It's very important to understand who these bridesmaids represent. The bridesmaids represent the visible church. That phrase, the visible church, is a a theological term that we use to refer to anyone who has made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and in our tradition, along with their children. So, When you join this church, Christ Church San Antonio, our elders will hear your profession of faith in the gospel. And if our elders deem that profession to be credible, they will admit you into membership in our visible church. But no elder really knows your heart. We can't guarantee that someone's faith is genuine just because they can articulate the gospel. It is true, yes, that we can see fruit or a lack of fruit over time, but only God really knows the heart. Only God sees the invisible church, which is all his people, all his elect, past, present, and future. Also, do you remember Will's sermon a few weeks ago where the wedding feast is being thrown and those who were initially invited refused to come. And so the master of the house sends servants out to bring people in from the streets and the alleyways and the roads. These bridesmaids have all accepted the invitation to the wedding party. They've all come to the wedding. In other words, and and you've got to get this, all of these bridesmaids have had some sort of what we would probably call a conversion experience. They've all joined a church, but some run out of oil and some don't. So if all the bridesmaids are the visible church, what does the oil represent? There's all kinds of, you know, characterizations for what the oil can be. I think it's best to say that the oil represents a state of the heart that manifests itself in behaviors that anticipate the groom. The oil represents a state of the heart that manifests itself in behaviors that anticipate the groom. So do you see what Jesus is saying? Listen, friends, 
it is possible to have what we would all consider to be significant religious experiences in our past and yet still miss out on the wedding because we're not prepared in the present. This is a parallel story to the parable of the sower when the farmer throws seed on shallow soil. Remember when we studied that, the seed sprouts up for a time and then is choked out by thorns, by the cares of the world, and is not fruitful. It's possible to be a part of a church, to have had significant experiences religiously or spiritually, and not to be prepared. So unprepared that you don't get into the wedding. So who might this be? How does this fit into our categories today? Some of you might fit that category. Those of you who are reliant on a past experience, but don't have any present faithfulness or like one of the foolish bridesmaids. We might have had an experience walking down an aisle, praying some prayer, being baptized, And we think once saved, always saved. I've been taught that by my pastor, so I'm good to go. Listen, that is not what Jesus taught. Jesus teaches once saved, always saved. But the always saved part doesn't mean that you just rest on something that happened to you 25 years ago, irrespective of what's happening in your life right now. The always saved is an active, abiding discipleship, a readiness of the heart to receive Jesus. That doctrine does not imply that one experience and then no ongoing change represents a true conversion. And so what does it look like to be a foolish bridesmaid? Perhaps, perhaps it looks like you thinking that you're good to go because once upon a time in your past, you signed some card at revival that says, I want to be a Christian, but it's made no difference in your life since then. You're not ready. It also might look like those of you who are around church, those of you who are in favor of church, heck, those of you who are listening to me preach a sermon in a church, but aren't born again, as Jesus says in John chapter three. Marianne and I, a number of years ago, heard a sermon from uh, the pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. His name is Liam Gallagher. He was preaching on John 15, where Jesus compares himself to a vine and his people are branches. And Jesus's point is anyone who's connected to the vine bears fruit. And, and Gallagher used this illustration that has stuck with me. This is almost 20 years ago now. He said that some people think that they're a branch when really they're just a Christmas tree ornament ever seen a beautiful Christmas tree at Christmas time from a distance? I mean, those things are well put together. The lights, the ornaments, everything's beautiful. It's one big piece and you can't really make sense of the various parts. But the difference, of course, between the Christmas tree ornament and a branch is that one is artificially connected to the vine, to the tree, and the other is really connected to the vine or to the tree. This parable, friends, listen, it teaches that some people are a part of a visible church. Some people have Christian values. Some people might even do some serving and some giving, but they've never really encountered the resurrected Jesus Christ in their lives personally. These are those who would say they're Christians, but they don't want to be too Christian. They're, they're kind of half Christians, if I can invent a category 
and a half Christian is in reality a no Christian. They're not one of these, they think, crazy sold out people. They're just someone who sees their faith as one of many important aspects of a well-rounded life. If that's the way you think about your own faith, then you're exactly who Jesus is speaking to in this story. And he's telling you, friends, that you're not ready. You're not prepared. Past experience does not equal present preparedness. One other point of application. And I know this is a challenging sermon, which means we should listen as Jesus speaks to us through his word. Did you notice that when the foolish bridesmaids, verse 8, when they ask the wise bridesmaids, hey, give me a little hit of your oil. You know, can I borrow some of that? The wise bridesmaids are like, get your own oil. Did you notice that? That's kind of rude, isn't it? You might have thought that, even as it was read. And you know, these wise bridesmaids, they're thinking, okay, if we give you our extra oil, there's not going to be enough oil for any lamps to be lit when the groom comes back. So we can have like half the oil, half the torches lit, or like none of the torches lit. We can't, we can't afford to do that. You can't have our, our oil. So they say, go find your own oil. You know, if you read through the story again, that's kind of just an incidental, incidental detail. Jesus could have completely deleted verse 9, and the story really would still fit. So why did he include that little interaction between the wise and the foolish bridesmaids? I actually think that's a significant piece of application that each of us need to hear. Jesus is saying through this story that faith in him is not transferable. Faith in Jesus is not transferable. You cannot rely on the faith of someone else if you're going to be ready for his return. You, you can't rely on someone else to prepare you for Jesus to come back. You have to personally prepare yourself. Now, I'm not saying that community is unimportant, that relationships with other Christians are unimportant, or that we cannot learn from others or grow from others. I, w- I would affirm all those things. I think what Jesus is saying here is that for you and for me to relate to God, to have a real personal relationship with God, for us to be ready to enter the wedding feast of God, we have to be prepared ourselves. Think about that. Is it not very possible? I think it is. It's, it's very possible for people like you and me to be radically affected emotionally and and impacted mentally by other people's religious experiences, by other people's encounters with God. It's possible for you to believe that you're ready for Jesus to return because your parents raised you in church. It's possible for you to believe that you're ready for Jesus to return because all your friends are Christians and yet not really be ready because you've never prepared yourself, but you've tried to share the oil of others. My sister-in-law, Marianne's sister, Meredith. Meredith went to college at uh, Texas Tech and uh, her and her boyfriend, who's now her husband, would go to a bunch of Texas Tech football games. And, you know, Marianne and Meredith, they grew up with three girls in the family and their dad wasn't into sports. So they like knew nothing about sports. And I've spent, you know, 17 years now trying to disciple my wife into loving sports. But so Meredith would go to these games and and she didn't know anything about football. She didn't know what a touchdown was. She didn't know how many points you scored on a field goal. She barely knew what colors her team was. 
but she was engaged in the game because everyone around her was engaged with the game. And so when there would be a touchdown from Tech, which granted probably didn't happen very often, um, they would cheer and, and clap and say, yeah, go Tech. And Meredith would, guess what? She would clear, cheer and, and she would clap and she would say, yeah, go Tech. And when there was a touchdown scored by the opponent, or when the refs made a bad call, boo, you refs stink. And Meredith would say, boo, you refs stink. She was engaged externally, but had no idea personally what was going on and wasn't impacted really personally at all. And I think similarly, we can believe that just because our environments is Christianized, that we are right with God. So kids, children, Listen, your parents love you, your parents care for you, your parents are committed to teaching you the faith, but your parents cannot prepare you to meet Jesus when he comes back. You must prepare yourself by believing in the gospel, by living the life of a disciple. Husbands and and wives, the holiness and the spiritual growth of your spouse cannot prepare you to meet Jesus when he comes back. It's wonderful that your significant other is growing spiritually and is influencing you in important ways and helping you increase in your own understanding of Jesus, but your significant other cannot prepare you to meet Jesus when he comes back. You must prepare yourself by believing in the gospel, by living the life of a disciple. Jesus is speaking in this parable to each one of us individually and asking, are you prepared? Are you prepared or are you reliant on borrowing someone else's oil? Let's look secondly at the consequence, the consequence of unpreparedness. The five foolish versions, they rush as fast as they can, right? When the oil is refused, they they go back to their houses, to the house of the groom, and they come back to the house of the groom, hoping to be back before the groom arrives, finally ready with enough oil to keep their torches blazing despite their procrastination. But when they come back, what do they find? Verse 10, while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who went ready, those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. The consequences for their unpreparedness, you know, they're pretty, pretty significant. Wondering what to do next as they're stranded outside in the darkness of the night, they bang on the door of the groom's house. Verse 11, Lord, open to us, Lord, open to us. And the groom's answer in verse 12, you know, it's one of those kind of chilling things, frankly, that Jesus often says, truly, I say to you, I don't know you. What does Jesus mean? Jesus knows everything. Jesus knows what I'm thinking right now. Jesus knows everything about me and everything about you. Well, that's idiomatic language. That means I don't have a relationship with you. And and you don't have a relationship with me. We don't know each other. We aren't friends with each other. Jesus is saying that the consequence of unpreparedness is that you miss out on the party. If you're not living in readiness, then you will not be let in. The door will be shut. So what does it look like to live in readiness? I suppose that's the key question. What does it mean for you and for me to be prepared? Jesus wants us to consider that. How can I be sure I won't be left out of the party? 
Well, I've already told you, readiness does not look like simply relying blindly on some past experience, irrespective of what you're doing with your life right now. It doesn't mean you can tell Jesus, hey, wait a minute, Jesus, I went to church. I cared about the poor. I got baptized. I prayed a sinner's prayer. It doesn't mean that. Nor does readiness look like, on the other hand, our lives kind of being on like constant red alerts, waiting for the return of Jesus so that we're always like fiercely anticipating it. And we're kind of like spiritual doomsday preppers, you know, those people have come up in COVID a lot. And that can be true religiously too. We can doomsday prep and just obsess over when Jesus is going to come back. That's not what it looks like to be ready either. So what does it look like? What does it look like to be a wise bridesmaid? I think we have to take the rest of the Bible seriously. We've looked at it in this series alone. What, what does Jesus call us to in almost every one of these parables? What did John the Baptist call us to as he prepared the way for Jesus? What does the apostle Paul and Peter and John, what do they call us to? They call us to repent. They call us to live a life of regular, ongoing repentance and a life of regular, ongoing, returning to Jesus Christ. When Jesus says in verse 13, watch, he means be spiritually awake. He means have a sense day in and day out of your own sinfulness, of your own failings, and then turn from them and go to Jesus again and again and again to be ready. And, and to watch does not mean that we beat ourselves up over not being ready enough. Ironically, that's going to keep you from going to Jesus. When we feel too ashamed, when we feel too bad, when we feel too guilty to go to him. No, Jesus is asking you not to run out of oil. Remember what I said oil is. It's a state of the heart that manifests in behaviors that anticipate the groom. What behavior anticipates the groom? Repentance and faith. And that's it. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what change looks like. Jesus wants you to hear, friends, that discipleship is a life of listening to Jesus' word. It's not a moment. It's not a one-time experience of listening to Jesus' word. It's a life of listening to Jesus' word and experiencing the conviction of his word and turning to Jesus for forgiveness and grace. It's not a one-time transactional experience. That is the picture of unreadiness. It's the way of the foolish bridesmaids. It's an ongoing process of heart change. And listen, friends, let me close by telling you this. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus tells us that in this life, it's never too late to repent. Jesus will always receive you when you come to him. In fact, the gospel tells us that Jesus himself was shut out of his own party so that you can be led in by his grace through faith. Why do you think Jesus was murdered on a cross outside the gates of Jerusalem? Well, it's a symbol of the fact that Jesus had to leave his father's presence and suffer for our guilt and shame in order that we, free of charge, might be let in. Anyone who believes that message 
and lives a life of constantly reorienting himself or herself to that message in repentance and faith will be let into the party. It's never too late in this life, but one day it will be too late. One day, the door of the feast is going to be shut and some will be left out, but it is not shut yet. You can still enter in. You may have thought you were going to the party, but right now you're out of oil. Jesus is asking you to get ready. Come to him. You can do it today in real repentance and in real faith and enter into the joy of your father. Let's pray.